Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, your host. And as always, I hope you guys are striving, thriving, and surviving in these quarantine-infested streets, these police brutality streets, these gun violence streets. The streets are wild. (laughs) The streets are certainly wild. And it's interesting because my mom called me yesterday and she was like, you know, hey, Rita, I hear they're shooting young people in these streets, you know, be careful. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is so ridiculous. You know, the last couple of weeks we have seen so much gun violence and it's not to say that gun violence was not on and popping, especially as a term that we used to use back when I was a prosecutor, sons out, guns out. So this is not necessarily something that's, you know, like, wow, look at all this gun violence. It's just the fact that I think people are tired of seeing one year old babies get shot, you know, random people just getting shot. Like you have beef in the streets, take care of it some other way. But this, I mean, I've seen so many videos this past week of people just busting shots in the middle of the street in broad daylight, senseless killings, senseless killings. And the people are tired. The people are so tired of it. And so, there's a lot going on in these streets. We're fighting. We're still dealing with the coronavirus. We're dealing with all these social injustices, economic injustices, and we are literally fighting for our lives within our own communities. So it's a lot for one person to take on a daily basis. So I really hope you guys are doing what you can to get your minds right. You know, whether it's through therapy or just finding something that's therapeutic so that you can just go on to live another day and be your best self because it's a lot going on in these streets. So today we have an amazing show. All the shows are amazing, but, you know, I have to say it anyways. We have an amazing show today. We're going to be talking about economic justice with my dear friend, Brandon N. Gibson, who is a real estate developer, uh, primarily in the New York, New Jersey area. But he also works, you know, cross country. Um, So he's going to come on today to talk about what economic justice is, what economic development is, how we can pursue it, what can we do, what does by the block mean. So we're going to go into a real in-depth conversation about these concepts because in a time like this where racial tensions are high, people are using these terms every day. We hear we need economic justice first before education. There's all of this rhetoric going on, but do we really understand what we're saying? Do we understand what we're calling for? So Make sure you keep it locked for that. So before I get into the preliminaries, I did just want to highlight, you know, uh, two amazing individuals, two giants in our community that recently passed away. So the first one is Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. Um, Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian was a civil rights advocate. He was a civil rights organizer. He was the field general for Dr. Martin Luther King. And he recently passed away at the age of 95. And we lost another big wig in our community 
Congressman John Lewis, U.S. Representative for Georgia's 5th Congressional District. I mean, those of us in the legal community especially, you know, we, we've we been in tune with a, a lot that's been going on in politics because of him, right? And he was a civil rights activist as well, um, known for his work with Dr. Martin Luther King as well. And unfortunately, he passed away, um, you know, with... Uh, pancreatic cancer and so even till his last days you know he was still being a beacon of hope for the community right he was still fighting the good fight just not in the streets but from you know the privacy of his own home he was still being that leader and so to see you know now in a time like this that we're losing these civil rights activists these staples in our community these giants right these civil rights giants it's just sad to see i mean at the end of the day this is the cycle of life right we 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 live to die that is the cycle of life but it is always sad when you know these individuals that have contributed so much of their lives you know dedicated their life's work to justice, to the advancements of black people, we cannot just, you know, move on without acknowledging them and, and, and just, you know, remembering them and, you know, making sure that their legacy stays, stays alive, right? That in our history books, um, you know, when we're talking to our children, that their names are, are said and that we do not forget them and the work that they've done. So rest in peace to Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian and rest in peace to Congressman John Lewis. So we are now on to our preliminaries. So it is now time for our Urban Dictionary word or phrase of the week. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? May I have the definition? Um, what does keep keep mean? What's on fleek? Can you use it in a sentence? And it's gonna be lit. Major key. It's time for the Urban Dictionary word or phrase of the week. So this week's Urban Dictionary word or phrase of the week is drop gun. An unregistered firearm carried by policemen to drop at the scene where a pursued suspect has been shot, used to justify shooting slash killing a possibly unarmed suspect. Example, witnesses found a pistol lying on the ground near the fleeing criminal's body, but nobody except the pursuing policeman knew it was only a drop gun, not the criminal's weapon. So as we are navigating these uh, police brutality streets, these these tense police streets, we are seeing more and more of these types of definitions enter into the urban dictionary. Right now, why do I um, highlight them? Because I think it's important for us to understand these concepts, not saying that I totally agree with every urban dictionary um saying but again i think it's important that the people are informed with respect to you know what some of these what some of this lingo is right especially those of us who are parents who are dealing with children they know the urban dictionary like the bible like the back of their hand and some of these things we just need to be on top of it but i do find some of the definitions some of the phrases and and and, and such to be very very interesting and i always like to draw a little more than just giving you the you know the definition 
So right now we're living in a time again, because this is not the first time that we have been in this era of, you know, police tensions, right? Where the community is at odds with the police and vice versa. Right now we're experiencing it to a different degree because I feel like the police departments are just revolting. Like you wanted to cut our budgets. Well, fine. You you're accusing us of doing all these things and there's all this tension. We're just not going to do our jobs anymore. And we're just, you know, we're just going to, it's just going to be like, whatever. And so people are just becoming more and more skeptical and are now like, you know, look like looking back on situations and encounters with police and are wondering, are the police, you know, as corrupt as we've made them out to be in the past like this? Because right now, right, the police's job is supposed to protect and serve, right? Maybe amongst other things. And I guess what a lot of people are wondering is if you can just, you know, wantonly walk away from your duties as a police officer because you're not happy with what the public or what the policymakers and what, you know, legislatures and whatnot are are saying to you or are, you know, or how they're acting towards you, that you're just going to be like, whatever, I don't care, you know. That it goes to show that, I guess, you know, to what level did you really regard your position as a police officer? And is it now true that all of these theories and all of these things that we've heard about, all this corrupt nature that we've heard about the police officers, you know, can they be true? And it's funny, I was having a conversation with my uncle the other day. And we were talking about some case where, you know, the police officer like planted evidence. And now people are I've heard this like within the last maybe week and a half. A lot of people are starting to talk about the corrupt natures of the police in terms of planting evidence. And I know we're a CSI law and order community. You know, we watch TV and that's what informs us. But when I saw drop gun, I'm like, this is in line with a lot of the ideas now about the police department, you know, how they how they uh, interact with black and brown people, how many of us have gone to jail for nothing, you know, or planted evidence. And it was just interesting how um, this definition was like the first thing that popped up. Usually what I do is I'll scroll to see like what what's going on this week? What are the highlighted um, phrases um, and definitions? And drop gun happened to be like at the top of the list. Um, but I find that it's very interesting the amount of anti-police definitions we are seeing in the Urban Dictionary. And, and I'm wondering if that's truly reflective of what the general public is feeling, right? Because it's the people that actually submit these definitions and terms and whatnot to the Urban Dictionary. So found it kind of interesting. So that's that's the word of the week. So now we are up to my favorite section of this show. It is now time for the Big Up of the Week. So this week's Big Up of the Week goes to my amazing panelists of Black Minds Matter. So for those of you who don't know, last week, I believe it was Wednesday, yes, July 15th, um, I moderated an amazing panel entitled Black Minds Matter under the uh, the company, my new media company, Black Ivy Media. And the discussion was really geared toward 
understanding what's going on with COVID-19 as it pertains to our children and the state and well-being of black children in these public schools. And it was just I mean, I'm still on a high from that panel because I know each and every one of them was amazing on their own, but putting them all together to discuss these issues was just amazing. I'm still getting text messages and emails from people just, you know, giving positive feedback on that panel discussion. And so Sammy Ligo, a elementary education uh, teacher from Atlanta, those of you who are, you know, who tune into this show know that I had a show with him I think a couple, several months ago, um, he was the Atlanta teacher that went viral for doing uh, Freestyle Fridays with his elementary school class. And then we had uh, Tanisa Martin, who is an amazing educator, teacher leader from New York City. Um, Tanisa and I actually went to St. John's University together. That's how I got to know her. And we're still um, connected through the St. John's University Black Alumni Association. And she's a special education teacher. So she has a, she had a lot to contribute to the uh, conversation with respect to special ed kids. And then we had uh, Gregory Mellon, who is a bilingual school psychologist here in New York, um, in Brooklyn, New York. And he's a representative for the state uh, school psychologist association. And so these individuals did not know each other prior to being on this panel, but you would never know it. And it's just, again, the knowledge that, uh, the, that took place, right? The sharing of information. Um, it was just such valuable conversation. And so for those of you who are wondering where you can see this Black Minds Matter panel discussion, it is uploaded to our YouTube channel, well, to the YouTube channel, the Black Ivy Media YouTube channel. If you subscribe there, you'll be able to find uh, the YouTube video. For those of you on Facebook, you should be able to find it on our Facebook page, uh, Black Ivy Media as well. Um, but I wanted to big them up because I'm still, again, it's been, it's going to be almost a week now. And the conversation was just so good. Like these, these individuals are so dynamic and the things that they're doing with our children, if you are fortunate enough to have them be the teachers of your kids, I really hope that people do watch that uh, panel discussion and get ideas because their innovativeness their innovation and their their forward thinking when it comes to how to deal with our black and brown children, how to teach them effectively, how to train these kids to not just be, you know, successful, but to be leaders. I, I have no words for it. So big up to them. So now with every high, there is a low. And this week's low goes to again. The Kentucky Police Department, the, you know, murderers of Breonna Taylor. I am happy to see that people are still talking about her because we know what happens in these streets. There's so much killings that take place. We often have to keep moving on and, you know, and we just have to like put people to the wayside. Breonna Taylor's murderers have still not been arrested and charged, right? They still have not been arrested and charged. And I know last week, Paul and I talked about this a little bit about some of the theories as to why they're not arrested and charged. However, I was scrolling through the interwebs and I found, um, you know, updated information, right? Uh, from the Courier Journal that states that Breonna Taylor was alive after police shot her. That's what the records indicated, Right. And no one tried to treat her. So she was alive for at least five minutes after the police shot her and she received no medical attention for at least 20 minutes. 
And it's crazy. It's crazy that all of this stuff is coming out and it's just enraging us even more. It's not bad enough that the police busted up in her house and just started shooting, right? And she caught all these bullets and, and, and died. But that she was actually alive for, you know, five minutes when you really think about it, it's not as short as people think. Five minutes is not as short as people think when it comes to matters of life and death. Who knows if she could have been, you know, um, if she could have survived, if she was rendered aid immediately, right? But she wasn't. Instead, she was treated as many black people are treated in this country as nothing, as, as, you know, she was treated worse than an animal. At least when somebody hits the deer on the side of the road, they get out the car and see if they can, you know, perform CPR. I mean, I've seen some crazy things of people trying to save animals, right? People trying to save roadkill. So here we have a black woman in her home, an EMT. So she was a, a service provider, right? An EMT, how ironic, right? An EMT sleeping in her house when the police rolled up in there on a janky warrant, shot, you know, was just, just blazing fire in her house. She gets shot multiple times. Nobody renders any assistance for her. And we know that the records indicate she was alive for five whole minutes. A lot can be done to save a life in five minutes and nothing was done. It wasn't that they attempted to do and then it just didn't work out or they or, or, or it just wasn't enough. They didn't do anything. They let her gasp and feel the pain of those of that hot lead in her body for five minutes. And then 20 minutes later, they decided, I guess, to attempt to do something much in the way, I guess, that they treated George Floyd. Right. You saw how they stood on his 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 knee. They had their knee on his neck for, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds. And then when the paramedics showed up, which I still doubt that they were actually paramedics, because if you look at the video closely, they're they look like uniformed police officers to me, how they just threw him onto the gurney and transported him to the hospital. It's like, this is how they treat us. And I think that it's important for us to continue giving them the womp womps, to continue calling them out, to continue giving them donkey of the days or whatever it is that you want to say until something is actually done. Like we can't just because there's new and fresh killings upon us. We can't forget about the Brianna Taylor's right. And even the Sandra Bland, it's been so long, but we cannot forget about these individuals, these women, these black women. Cause I understand the thing about black men, black men are targets all the time, but the black women, nobody really like, we don't talk about them enough. We don't talk about what happened to them. We don't, we don't mention them. They're not part of the conversation. So when I saw when I saw the news clip, I said, I have to mention her. You know, I have to I have to speak on it and I'm going to keep speaking on it until something happens. So that was the womp womp of the week. So without further ado, we are now on to the meat of the show. All right, everyone. I'm here with my very special guest, Brandon Gibson. Brandon, say hello. Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Looking forward to our chat. <laughs> you're welcome so brandon um let everybody know who you are where you're from and what you do uh i am not that interesting so i'll try to uh, 
pull something out of the air. Oh, stop it. Uh, <laughs> I'm from, I'm from seriously, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, uh, born and raised pre-gentrification, uh, during gentrification, and we'll see about post-gentrification. Um, I'm a state developer and investor here in New York, Philly, uh, most recently Dallas. Uh, we build primarily residential housing, uh, workforce housing for the most part. Uh, and we also um, do a ton of uh, ground up development in addition to uh, stabilized uh, existing repositioning of um, properties um, in the Northeast and uh, uh, Dallas, Texas. And in addition to that, I'm a communicator. I do a lot of speaking um, in different circles around issues of justice, around issues of um, advancement and uh, sort of motivation, uh, and uh, and sort of also spiritual, sort of spiritual awakening as well. So kind of an interesting, an interesting character to say the least uh, when it comes to when it comes to the different things that I speak about. But I guess the topics are more interesting than I am. But and that's kind of how I look at it, to be honest with you. But um, it's a lot of deep stuff out there to talk about that I enjoy sort of uh, throwing out there. So that's me. Okay. Well, for somebody who's not very interesting, <laughs> you do touch on a lot of different aspects that are interesting. So, Sure. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Well, I do want to thank you again for uh, making your way onto this platform and sharing your expertise on today's topic, which is economic development. And with everything going on in the community, economic development seems to be a hot term. Everybody's using it. But I am a little concerned that people are using it, but they don't really know what it actually means. So, Brandon, if you could just Tell us, you know, in, in your words, what exactly is economic development? Well, I, I think that when people are talking about economic development now, after the George Floyd uh, murder and uh, sort of the riots and um, protests and everything in between, I think what they're talking about is not economic development, economic justice. Mm. Um, economic development has always gone on. The country was founded on economic development, and that economic development was founded on slavery, the enslavement of African people. And that's how the country developed economically. So there's always, and there always has been, there always there is currently, and there always will be economic development where you choose a particular economic system, whether that be capitalism, socialism, Marxism, um, hundreds of years ago, mercantilism, so on and so forth, all the other isms out there, different forms of uh, economic systems, you choose that system and then you develop a society, uh, the economics of that society uh, around that system. Uh, We in America and most of the Western world, we've chosen to develop uh, our society around the principles of capitalism, uh, which require certain, you know, realities, supply and demand, debt, um, you know, ownership, you know, producers and consumers and so on and so forth to make the system work. Um, theoretically it should be, you know, every fish for himself, you know, if, you know, if you, if you fail, you fail. And if you succeed, you succeed. And there should be no intervention, uh, by the government. And clearly we see that that is not the case in America where mm-hmm. when it's, when it's, when it's, uh, corporate America, it's a, it's a bailout and apparently the, the economy needs it. But when it's, you know, 
Joe and Joe and Jill, um, you know, citizen who works a nine to five every day and is trying to make two ends meet. Um, it's not a bailout, it's welfare. Um, and so it's a very interesting <laughs> topic that has a whole bunch of layers to it. Um, and um, again, I think people, when they say economic development, they really mean economic justice to mean, you know, we were basically given freedom uh, people of African descent in this country and uh, the, the enslaved Africans were given freedom, but we weren't given justice. Um, we weren't given fairness uh, economically. And honestly, I really believe that the fight really starts there. I think once you have economic justice and economic freedom, all of the other just injustices become more easy to deal with, in my opinion. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I'll start there. Okay. And I'm glad that you made that clarification because I think that there is a lot of... Um, a lot of misuse of the term because economic justice really is what I think people are talking about, but economic development just seems to be the term that's used in a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing. So I really yeah. do appreciate that clarification. So now why exactly does this matter? And I know it's an ob it might be obvious to many people, but I think that for the large majority, you know, in my interactions and even when I do my lives, it, it's, it seems to escape many why economic justice actually matters, particularly in these times as we're talking about gentrification. I don't know if you had caught the last episode, but uh, Paul Bromley and I, we had talked about the gentrification ploy that might have led mm -hmm. to the death of Breonna Taylor. And mm -hmm. so when we're talking about things like that, like the importance of uh, tackling this issue of gentrification and, and, and you know, sustaining our business, businesses, and we're talking about things like buying the block, many still don't understand how M economics plays in all of this. So why exactly does economics matter? Like, why is that what we need to really tackle um, first before anything else? Man, where do I begin? How much time do we have? I mean... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, I mean, uh, where do I begin with that? I mean, I, I, I think the, the best place to really begin that conversation as it pertains to black and brown people in America and really uh, the world is probably... Haiti. I think Haiti is Haiti is probably the best uh, example of why economics matter, uh, why it mattered then, why it matters now, why it'll continue to matter. Um, the enslaved Africans in Haiti overthrew their oppressors in 1804, um, overthrew Napoleon, whooped his behind. Um, first army to do that was a bunch of enslaved Africans in Haiti. Um, they won their freedom. The French were salty and came back uh, in 1825 with gunboats in the harbor, basically threatening and almost like a mafia telling the French, telling the Haitian people, uh, pay us reparations of 150 million francs or we're going to attack you again. And we're not going to give you access to the world economy at that time much like it is now, not as white as it was then, but certainly it's still um, predominantly uh, European, although that's changed to, with the uh, introduction of India as an economic power and places like Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and China, obviously, uh, back, in, back during this time, that wasn't the case. 
during that time, you know, the, the economic powers were solely uh, Europe, basically European countries, Spain, Portugal, France, England, um, those, those countries where they were the powerhouses at the time. And so, uh, and America was just coming on the scene. And so uh, the Haitian people were held hostage. Their freedom was held hostage because they had no choice but to pay back this 150 million francs. It took them over a hundred years and they were, uh, you know, indebted to the, you know, basically borrowing the money from France to pay France back, which is just insane. Um, and that paying of the uh, uh, French uh, people, uh, French slave um, owners back the 150 million francs uh, was 60, 70% of the budget for Haiti every year. So they could never develop the country. They could mm -hmm. never get enough time to become a nation uh, a strong nation economically. And then on top of that, all of the other um, countries, uh, economic powers, we won't recognize you as a, as a, as a nation and we won't, you know, institute trade and economic relations with you until France does. And France said, we're not going to do it until you pay us back, pay us $150 million. Um, and uh, France paid that money back. And um, uh, French, uh, not French, Haitian prime minister, um, uh, God, his name is escaping me because I said this, talked about this so many times. But um, you know his name. What's his name, Rita? I'm listening to you, so it's escaping me as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's going to come back to me. Anyway, uh, early 2000s, he's in Durban, South Africa, and uh, it's a it's a conference, a world conference on racism and justice, and he stands up in uh, Durban, South Africa, and basically says that uh, he demands for France to pay back the 150 million francs. Mm -hmm. And France says, oh, yeah, okay. France doesn't say, let me do the right thing and you know, pay back this money that we basically stole from you guys. And it was basically a ransom payment. Um, France says, okay, we're going to send in our army and remove you as uh, Aristide. Uh, President Aristide is his name. Um, we're gonna, and we're going to remove Aristide from office since he was so bold to tell us in front of the whole world to mm -hmm. pay us pay them back, pay Haiti back the $150 million, 50 million francs that was basically a ransom. See, that's why you killed me. You said prime minister. If you told me president, I would have, it would have triggered. <laughs> so yeah, I received, um, apologies. Uh, and so, you know, and, and, and it was basically an embargo against Haiti. And so you, so then, you know, your listeners are probably asking, so what's your point? What does that have to do with mm -hmm. us now? And the same thing happened to black people in this country. Uh, where we were locked out of practically every wealth building program this country has ever provided to its citizens. Uh, you have the Homestead Act, where white peasants, this country was built on, on slavery and, and peasants from Europe, mm -hmm. um, who were also enslaved. A lot of people don't even understand. Yes, the that. Irish, the Italian, they were, they were and, the bottom of the barrel. And the British, and the, mm -hmm. Brit and, and, and the, British. the British peasants were, were also uh, enslaved before, prior to 1619. Um, and so, you know, those peasants, as America became a, a nation, those peasants were given, once whiteness was created, because before it was just the haves and the have-nots, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just what it was. But when whiteness was created and white privilege uh, created thereafter, uh, or at the same time, um, those peasants were then given an the opportunity for some kind of upward mobility when the nation of, uh, of the United States uh, formed. Uh, so you had the Homestead Act, where people, where people all over um, uh, uh, the country, peasants from Europe, came to the United States to 
get the American dream. And they were given land grants to settle out West and in the Midwest and, and given, you know, access to education paid for by the government and given access to uh, low interest to no interest loans and given government contracts to help them monetize the land that they were given freely uh, by the U.S. government. Black people were locked out of that opportunity. And again, listeners might ask, well, why is that even important? Well, you ask good questions because the money of wealth in this country, 80% to be exact, is inherited. So that means in order for me to have wealth in my generation, 80% of the time, there must have been wealth created before my generation mm -hmm. and before that generation in order for me to have wealth in my generation. Unless I create it myself, the only way that wealth is created in this country is through inheritance. That's just what it is. All the other wealth is entrepreneurs going out there and just making it happen. And, and I'm one of those. Um, but you see it more clearly if you want to kind of come to this generation now or within the last three generations, your grandfather, if you're white and my great grandfather, who let's say he's black, which he is, uh, and your great grandfather and my great grandfather fought in World War II and fought the same Nazis, you know, dug the same trenches, mm -hmm. bullets, came home to America to find that your great grandfather who's white, now gets to benefit largely from the GI Bill, gets a free education, gets a low interest loans, gets access to new housing communities outside of the city. Uh, get, they get to go to Levittown, which was prohibited for African-Americans to move to, and that was sanctioned by the U.S. government. The U.S. government made it illegal to give loans to African-American people um, and just give loans to white people, right? And so that house that they bought in 1950 uh, for $15,000, if you fast forward to from my grandfather to from my great grandfather to my grandfather uh, or and, and to my father, that $15,000 house has now just appreciated in value and is now worth $600,000, $700,000. So that, so that $15,000 investment has become a $700,000 asset for the family. And I can now as a family borrow against that $700,000 and send people to school. I can start a business. I can buy more properties. I can go on vacation. I can live a much better life because I have access to this capital because of this asset that was bought by my, by your great grandfather, courtesy of the U S government. Now my great grandfather, who's black comes back home. He can't access any of those programs. None of those programs does he have access to. As a matter of fact, he's relegated to the ghetto. What makes a ghetto a ghetto? There's divestment. No banks are there. Banks aren't lending there. There really is no opportunity for home ownership there. So we're relegated to renting. So I cannot build any equity in a, in a home or in any property. So I have to rent forever. And I can't send my kids to any good schools. I can't get a loan. I can't really experience any upward mobility. That legacy is not passed down to my grandfather, from my great-grandfather, from my grandfather to my father, and then from my father to me. And so whereas if you're white and you were in this country and your great grandparents were here and they benefited from those programs, they passed down opportunity, whereas I was passed down poverty, which, mm. now, which now creates another set of issues like crime, violence, despair, addiction, drug. It's, it just go, probably just creates all of those things, regardless of what color you are. And so, so when, you have, when you have economic justice, 
And quite frankly, when it comes to African-Americans and Caribbean, Caribbeans of African descent, economic justice initially means reparations. It means mm-hmm. paying back uh, and repairing um, the damage that was done as a result of slavery. And that continues to happen as a result of slavery and white privilege. And so um, we can get into that in a second. So just to answer your question more succinctly, after all of that that I just said, I'm sorry to bore your listeners. <laughs> it um, shouldn't be boring because this is the history. This is the stuff that we actually need to know and empower ourselves with. When Because a lot of these people who are listening are the same ones who are going to be you know, repeating rhetoric. And we want to make sure that they have a little foundation before they go on and continue their you know, silo discussions on economic justice. Yes. Right, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, ultimately, economic justice is needed because if you don't, the way capitalism works, now, we could have a separate conversation another time as to what what should we do about the economic system that we have. That's a totally different conversation that I don't think we should go into now. Mm -hmm. that's that's, That's a monster in and of itself. But if we're talking about existing in the current system that we're in to some degree or another, the system of capitalism, whether it be the way that it is now or with some alterations, there, you, you have to have some kind of path to have some kind of economic stability. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, then what's going to happen is you're going to be relegated to neighborhoods that are violent because of poverty. You're going to be relegated to neighborhoods where there's not good food options, which is Mm -hmm. going to affect your health. You will be relegated to a lack of opportunity because your schools are going to be defunded and underfunded and underperforming because the way schools um, are, especially in cities, the way schools are funded are through property taxes. And if there aren't owners in those neighborhoods and and property owners uh, who are homeowners and live there and take stock in, in those neighborhoods, in most cases, and those values are very low, the home values are very low, therefore the taxes are going to be low, then there's not enough money to be able to fund schools adequately enough to provide good uh, education. And even if there were enough money, uh, uh, monies to, to, um, uh, to, to, to fund these schools, you could have the money, but if you don't have the social and political clout to make sure that the vision for the school is what it needs to be, you could have all the money in the world and still have subpar education. So, so, so when you don't, when you, but, but if you're not economically empowered, then it's going to affect every other area of your life. It's going to affect who you marry. It's going to affect where you send your kids to school. If you should have kids or not, it's going to affect where you live. It's going to affect your health. It's going to affect everything in your life. It's going to affect where you go to church. It's going to, it's going to affect everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's just what it is. It, that's just what it is. And, and we see that with, with, with the coronavirus. folks who live in New York, um, if you are a person of means, that doesn't mean that because all white people aren't rich, but yeah. and all black people aren't poor. But what it does mean is that the system allows for white people, whether they're rich or poor, to have certain options and have access to certain things that we just don't have access to. Um, and so, if you're a person of means, to, to some degree or another, you don't have to be filthy rich, but you know you had the option of going to your mom's second home upstate New York to get away from the city during mm-hmm. the COVID crisis. You had the option of going to your in-laws house in the Hamptons or to Florida because they have a second home, a vacation home. You, you had the option of doing that. Whereas, and, and we saw that happen, right? We saw that happen. And then, and then you find on the flip side, if you're not a person of means, you're stuck here. You can't go anywhere. You can't get an Airbnb. 
you, you don't have an aunt who has a second home in the countryside somewhere. You don't have that. So again, economically, we're, we're affected again. The majority of, of, of the deaths that and the cases that, that occurred here in the city specifically happened in the Bronx uh, and Queens, places where there aren't wealthy you know, white people there. And the wealthy hospitals in the city got you know, funding and resources from Warren Buffett and all these other, when it should have gone to places like you know, Brookdale Hospital mm-hmm. and Kings County Hospital. But Elmhurst Hospital. Elmhurst, Elmhurst, exactly, Elmhurst Hospital. Again, the root is economics. The root is economics. The reason why the neighborhoods that see police brutality, where you would see Williamsburg, where they're giving out face masks for people who aren't wearing them, white people <laughs> who aren't wearing them, mm-hmm. versus East New York, Brooklyn, where you're getting arrested and beat up by cops because you're not wearing one. Mm-hmm. Why? If those people in East New York had money, the same or perceived to have money, the way that uh, the people in Williamsburg are perceived to have money, then there wouldn't even be a discussion. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't happen because when you're economically empowered, just like how poverty comes with certain consequences, so does having money comes with certain consequences. So does having, being economically empowered. The consequences of poverty are all of the things that I mentioned, crime, bad health care, no access to food, bad education or lack of uh, quality education and so on. The consequences for having money and having economic resources and, and stability is opportunity and access to good education. Um, no real experience with crime in your neighborhood, not violent crime, certainly, um, on a day-to-day. That's not a normal thing. Uh, you have access to a Whole Foods. Whole Foods went to Harlem when? When it became economically viable to do so, when the people who live there have the disposable income to justify opening up a Whole Foods in that neighborhood. Period. Mm-hmm. It's economic. It's all economic. You go to the, to the nicer neighborhoods, they have the nicest hospitals. When you, when you really want to go to get a surgery done, you're not going to go. You don't want to, you don't want to go to Brookdale. And I, I'm, no, not call, I'm, not call, I'm not calling out Brookdale for all the people and the first responders who work there. More power to you. You're doing some hard work. It just sucks that you exist in a system that doesn't support the work that you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. It's not the people at Brookdale. It's the system that Brookdale is in. Yeah that causes these disparities and causes them to just constantly continue and perpetuate Mm -hmm. over time because of poverty. And so whereas Brookdale should be getting certain resources that hospitals in on the upper East side are getting when they don't really even need this, this is, this is the reality that we're living in. So we live in a system that only values you based on what can afford. So, and that's capitalism. Mm -hmm. That's just what it is. That's just what it is. So again, separate conversation is, should we keep capitalism? Do we change it? That's a totally different conversation. But as far as staying in the system that we're in, this is what it is. You know, this is just what it is. So, Okay. So now I think in your response, we kind of answered the questions of, you know, why in a sense are we struggling with economic development? Because it's, it's more than just like what's happening now. We're talking about, you know, history, right? We're talking about decades upon decades, centuries upon centuries of being in particular predicaments, being set up in a sense for this failure in economic justice, right? right. Um, but now I think what we're seeing a lot of now is people really determined to focus on this idea of economic justice, of getting economic justice. We're hearing, you know, buy black. We're hearing we need to buy the block. We need to be like the Jewish community. We need to be like the Chinese community. We're likening, we're using all of these different communities who we believe 
mm-hmm. have made it right, and we believe are 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 up there in a sense. They 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 found the secret to, to to keeping things together and to gaining wealth and keeping wealth and you know making generational wealth and all these different things. And it's it's these other these groups, particularly the Jewish community, is the one that I hear of the most. When people are saying, you know, look at the Jewish community, look what they're able to do. So with mm-hmm. that being said, right, with this pursuit now, and I don't want to say it's a now pursuit. I think people have always been seeking this economic justice. But every time racial tensions um, arise, we hear more of the cry, right, for economic justice. Um, so with that being said, I would like for you to comment on this um, you know, this concept of buying the block, because that's what we're hearing a lot of, you know, we need to buy the block. We need to buy the block. What does that actually even mean? Good. I think that's a good question. Um, I think it's, it's an attempt to um, not just, um, not just exist in a certain location, but to, but to live there and to, and to take ownership uh, of not just the brick and mortar, but what, what happens in, in that neighborhood. Because in that statement, um, buying the block is not just, you know, again, owning the bricks and mortar and owning the buildings. It's when I buy the block, I get to decide what happens on the block and what doesn't happen on the block. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, growing up, I come from East New York, Brooklyn. Anybody who knows about Brooklyn, particularly East New York, you know that that's not, that's not uh, Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not the most that's, desirable that's the area to live in. No, no. Although it has changed, but yes. it's still East New York uh, at the end of the day, uh, depending on what street you walk down. Uh, but, um, but I come from there and, you know, I grew up around, you know, the hustlers. And I got my own story, you know, that we can talk about another time. Uh, but, um, you know, I grew up around hustlers and drug dealers and all the gangsters and all that. Um, and I, as, as a little kid, I used to watch how, you know, the people would fight over territories and, you know, you know, literally kill people, kill each other over territories, over like physical corners mm-hmm. to control that they, that they, you know, control. And then I would see how after a while the police would either come in, sweep them off the corner or the house that they were living in on that block with their mother or with their family, they would get evicted and then they had to move. So they were no longer in that neighborhood. And then I realized very early on in life that, oh, they didn't really own so they were killing each other for something that they didn't even own. It was just a perceived sense of ownership that wasn't real. And so you, you didn't really own it, but you were willing to die for it because you had to give yourself some sense of belonging and some sense of authority and some sense of ownership. Um, and that's when I learned that whoever owns the land makes the rules. And I think in that mm-hmm. term by the block, is, it is a, 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 an acknowledgement that we don't own the block, therefore we can only determine what happens on the block but to so but but to you know a certain point um and then once we reach that point we are no longer in control therefore we can't control the kind of schools we have we can't control the kind of hospitals we have we can't control um you know the the, the banks that come here or don't come here we, we can't control uh what the politicians do uh because we don't own here we don't we're not we're not fully invested here economically we're just living here we're just existing here not even living we're existing here um, and so the term by the block sort of uh, intimates to me that it is an, it's, it's an attempt to buy the physical block, but also change what happens on the block or what happens in the neighborhood for the betterment of those who live there. Mm, I see. I see. Okay. And so now 
I know we talked a little bit about this offline, but going, I guess, along the same vein as buying the block, we are seeing a lot of, you know, black professionals leaving the city. So leaving New York City to go to places like North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, Louisiana, Georgia, different places in the South to essentially build up whole abandoned communities, right? Like I think I was on Instagram Mm -hmm. maybe a couple of weeks ago when I saw that this community is on, an entire community is on sale for like $1.5 billion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there was one that was like, you know, a couple million dollars for an entire like township. And so um, even more recently, there was this this, uh, couple, so Cafe Louvriture that's in Bed-Stuy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing Haitian patties. They yeah, have really left good. they left the block. They left no, New York City. No, I didn't know that. Yes, they did. Oh, they left New York man. City and they went down to North Carolina to join a collective of professionals who are wow. essentially going to, you know, build up a community, right? So I it's 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 that whole buying that block, I guess, mentality. And so that's wow. where they are. They are no longer in Bedside, they are wow. in North what's Carolina. The, what's the name of the cooperative? Um, I can't remember the actual name. I could scroll through my Instagram, but I can send it to you afterwards. But it says a collective of individuals. I don't know if they actually gave the name, but they said it was a collective of individuals. It's in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And, they, you know, they, they've been documenting their journey so far since they left about maybe like, I think it's oh, wow. like maybe a good two weeks now that they've been wow. down there. But it's this idea that, listen, you know, there's an opportunity, one once in a lifetime opportunity to go and develop an entire town, entire community, you know, and revitalize mm-hmm. it, you know, as black businesses. So, mm-hmm. but my question is, though, for the people who do not want to leave New York, I mean, is, is, it's almost as if you cannot, like in order for you to really buy the block, for you to really revitalize, you know, and, and yeah. uh, black communities, you have to now leave New York City. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that really the case? Is it possible to still, for especially for, for people who have roots here, to still continue living their best life in New York City and building their blocks, right? Is that is that actually a possibility or do we now have to abandon New York City, go to the South in order for us to really, you know, have another Black Wall Street and things of that yeah. nature? Yeah, um, it's so funny. My, my answer to that, because I was asked that a, a bunch of times over the last year, and my answer to that was different before July. Mm. It was it was a different answer. Uh, now it's it's a combination of my old answer and and some new perspectives um, based on the new realities that we're seeing. So, the exodus out of New York is nothing new. I think Corona uh, has COVID nineteen has um, expedited that uh, exodus out of New York. Not just black people, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of white people have left. A lot, heck yeah. Zip you know? codes in Manhattan are have disappeared. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're breaking out. Um, and, um, I think that, so before COVID, um, I, my answer to that was absolutely, you have to leave. There's no other way. Just, just, just off of the numbers, because the land in New York is just so expensive mm-hmm. that it, it, you would have to have, you'd have to, you'd have to, you'd have to be a private equity company, um, or, um, have a, a, a fund, uh, a fund that has capital specifically allocated for the purchasing of entire blocks of properties. Um, and so, you know, numbers are just, it just, it's just astronomical. Now, if you have those, if you have those funds, then sure, stay in New York and do it. And, um, 
you know, values are so high in New York that, you know, there's not really opportunity of what, what we call in real estate, we call value add, where there's, there's an opportunity for value appreciation after you do some, some adjustments to the property, you renovate it, you add some floors, you, you know, do some things to increase its value. And then over time, because of the market, the market is going to be on an upward trajectory and you have enough space from where you bought it uh, and when you bought it to holding it over time for it to appreciate a significant amount as opposed to buying something at the top of the market and it's really at its at the height of this valuation and there really isn't much room for it to grow even over time. You're not you're gonna see modest growth over time. Whereas if you're in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma or North Carolina or even Atlanta, you you, you have more room uh, to uh, to take off. You have more room on the tarmac to take off. There's more room for value appreciation because it's not it hasn't reached its apex yet. Whereas in New York, we're like at the tippy tippy tip 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 top <laughs> of the market of the market in the country. New York and um, San Francisco are the most expensive places in the country. Um, so that being said, that was my response prior COVID nineteen. Um, now my response is still that, but with a major asterisk, a major caveat, and that would be that. What, what made my answer 100% true in my mind prior to COVID-19 is now um, making my answer uh, true, but it makes it more feasible to do some things here in New York now because prices are actually dropping. Valuations are going down. Um, we don't know to what degree it's gonna go down because it's still dropping. Um, vacancies in Manhattan have never been this high. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is just becoming historic the amount of apartments that are vacant because a lot of those people that I talked about earlier who had you know they're at their mom's second home they're at their yeah. aunt's the Hamptons whatever yeah, Westchester or or Maine they're in Maine and, and, yeah. and a lot of them they're not even you know necessarily wealthy they just they they just have the floor yeah. the economic floor for white for most white Americans is not the same economic floor for African Americans yeah yeah and, and, and Caribbean Americans it's just not. Yeah. So, you know, our, our, our net worth is $17,000 per family, uh, whereas their net worth is $170,000 per mm -hmm. family. So, so we are 10% economically from, from net value, from a net value perspective, we are worth 10% of what they're worth mm -hmm. uh, economically, asset-wise. Asset so it's just a different world. So for them, you know, a lot of them, they're not rolling the dough, but, but their, their regular, their norm is, is in many cases our ceiling that we yeah. haven't even... We haven't even touched yet as a community, as a people. Um, I was reading an article um, by Bloomberg. You guys should check out. Uh, MIT did a study about how cities are no longer the escalators of opportunity that they used to be. And COVID-19 mm -hmm. has kind of expedited that. And the, the, the greatest victims to cities uh, being on the decline as far as economic opportunities are concerned uh, is um, black male graduates, college graduates, where they're less likely to get um, the kinds of jobs uh, that white people, white males get without a college degree. Um, mm. And cities are becoming more, um, more of a tale of two cities where you have the ultra wealthy and the ultra poor. Yeah. We saw this going on since, since the Bloomberg days that we saw that happening uh, till now. 
where the, the middle class, and not just in New York, but in the whole country, the middle class is just shrinking. Yeah, it's obsolete almost. It's, it's, it's just shrinking. The opportunities, you know, the, the, the clerical jobs that once existed are, are being written off because of technology and mm-hmm. they're never coming back. The administrative jobs are going away because of technology and they're never coming back. Um, you know, you have all of these economic issues that, that are at play and black men, surprise, surprise, who are male graduates uh, are, are falling victim to that uh, more so than any other demographic. So, um, but, but, but that being said, um, I think that there's an opportunity to really do some development, economic development here in New York, um, in certain pockets of the city um, as values, I think values are going to continue to drop. I would urge everyone listening, if you're going to buy, I would hold out until next year to start buying. Also, oh, don't buy now because we're hearing we're hearing some contrary information. We're hearing a lot of real estate developers and real estate agents and things of that nature are saying that you know right now is the time to buy as as we're seeing these numbers quote unquote drop and we're seeing these vacancies and we're seeing people do this max exodus. So you're sure. saying next year? I think. I, I, so let me let me let me clarify. I, I'm not saying don't buy next year at all. I mean, don't buy this year at all. That's not what I'm saying necessarily. What I'm saying is that values are continuing to fall. They're, they're going to continue to fall and they're falling now. And I, I believe all indications are pointing to the fact that they're going to continue to fall. So if you have the means to buy now and you want to buy now, go ahead. You know, as long as you know that, you know, you're getting a considerable discount to where, from where the market was a few months ago mm-hmm. to where you decide to, to purchase uh, or the number at which you decide to purchase. But if you can wait, I would say wait towards the end of the year, beginning of next year, to, to really buy something if you want to invest or if you want to buy somewhere to live. Because I think that, again, the numbers are going to keep going down. Um, unemployment, I think, is going to continue to, to, to go up. Uh, I think wage growth is going to be, it was already stagnant. I think it's going to continue to be stagnant. Um, uh, there's not going to be much help from the federal government. Um, that's for sure. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, I think uh, you know, un- unless this is what you do every day and you're in the business, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what I do. I'm buying now and we're, you know, we're doing stuff. If this is not what you do and you really want to get the best bang for your buck in New York, I, I would say, you know, wait it out, you know, a couple, another couple months, 100%, because people are, people are really just, sellers are just starting to, to wake up from having these unrealistic, somebody sent me something yesterday. Um, they want $3 million for this property uh, in bed style. I'm like, okay, well, what is it? And I'm listening to the property. The property is worth bucks. Right now, mm-hmm. in its current condition, is worth a million bucks. They want me to pay them three million dollars. So clearly, you must have been living under a rock for the last four months. It was never worth three million dollars, and it's mm-hmm. definitely not worth the three million dollars now. So yeah. sellers are starting to wake up. There's, up. there's there's other sellers that are starting to get more realistic, but there's still a lot of sellers out there that have not understood that you know this is not what you think this this is it's not i know when you hear new york people think oh everything is going to be a you know a billion dollars because it's new york mm-hmm. i'm gonna get the most money because i own i own in brooklyn and all these white people are moving in my neighborhood so my building must be worth you know 10 million dollars now no that's not the case and so rents are going down therefore valuations are going to go down um, comps are going to go down um as a result so it's going to be a cascading effect and if you want to get get a real deal just keep following the market Keep following the market. Stay on top of it. Do your research. Keep you know looking at what's coming on the market, how long it's on the market, any price reductions. Talk to the brokers. Do all of that. Uh, and I would say if you, if you find a steal now, jump on. But if it's not something that's like wow, this is like because I think you could get a, you could really get a steal mm-hmm. um, over the next couple of months um, if you're if you're really following the market. Okay. So now 
along with hearing, you know, by the block and things of that nature, there's also this big push. Everybody is woke now. Everybody wants to, you know, support black business, black businesses. And so, uh, which is a beautiful thing. You know, I think that we should always support back black businesses. It should not be when there's a racial tension and crisis that we really start, you know, doing this. Um, but with that being said, I've been part of a lot of discussions where, you know, there's a lot of shaming going on. Oh, you know, you, you bought your candle and it's from Target, not from, you know, um, I don't know, Zimbabwe, you know, whatever candle, you know, company. Um, there's a lot of that happening right now because people are still trying to, I think, understand and figure out what buying black means too, because you have people who are like, we got to buy everything black. And so we're like, well, what does that mean? Because I still haven't identified, you know, laundry detergent that's black owned, you know, like, so there's so much involved with that. But I think my question to you is, is buying black enough to sustain black businesses, you know, because we're not, the conversation is about buying black. I do not hear a lot about investing in black, you know, pouring money Mm -hmm. into these black businesses. So is just simply buying black, is that enough to sustain black businesses? That's such a great question. Um, So we're currently, I'm going to answer it this way initially, and then we'll see where the conversation goes. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're, we're currently actively and very seriously, um, uh, acquiring, uh, a bank now, mm-hmm. uh, which would, which would be a majority, um, African-American owned mm-hmm. here in New York, uh, Brooklyn to be exact. And what we find with black, um, banks, because there are already black banks in this country, mm-hmm. Carter, One United, and so on. Um, what we find is that they're very limited in their ability to scale because their narrative is to appeal to one demographic. And the problem is that demographic is a minority in number in this country. So they can't grow, become on the level of a chase or whatever, one, because they're new and chase has been for forever. Uh, and those, those banks have been around since, you know, 1800s and probably some even before with acquisitions of other banks, um, 1700s, 1600s and so on. And so those banks have had the time to grow and they've also had the market share to grow. So those banks aren't marketed as white banks, but they're predominantly white owned, but they take everybody's money. Mm-hmm. Black banks say that they're a black bank and market to black people, which are which which is basically a small subset of the 300 plus million people in the country. So that poses a challenge when black people are putting their money at the chases and the city banks and the Wells Fargo's of the world, and then the black banks are only uh, marketing to mainly black people who is already a small demographic. And then most of that demographic that's already small, they're putting putting their funds in other places or or taking out loans. Because really banks don't make money from deposits necessarily. They make money from loans. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how they make, that's that's their business model. They have to make good loans and that's how banks make their money. Uh, Again, capitalism, uh, credit, lending, debt is the lifeblood of capitalism. So um, it, it creates a challenge when you're just going to appeal to one demographic and you want to be a national bank, 
only reaching out to black people as opposed to reaching out to everybody and being black owned. So the approach we're taking is to not harp so much on the fact that we're a black owned bank, which we will be, but more so on the fact that we have the interests of black people, of all people, especially those who have been historically underserved uh, and have not had access to capital, we're going to make sure that with our bank, they have that access. Oh, and two, New York City, we want you to take, because New York City uh, uh, is predominantly um, minority, uh, which is minority in the country, so New York City is majority black and brown. Um, New York City, we want you to take um, a few of your accounts away from the Chase and City Banks of the world and put it with our black bank here in New York because the majority of your people are black and brown. So it should be here and not mm-hmm. at the Chase Bank, not at the whatever, it should, it should be here. And so that's what we're working on. Um, and so I think that it's challenging on a few levels. I think we absolutely need to support black businesses. We absolutely need to do that. And at the same time, I think black businesses need to be at a level where they attract that support, not just yes. because you're black. Yes. I think that I think that uh, I went to a Jamaican restaurant yesterday in East New York because I was so hungry and I had to do something at our church over there. And I was, just, I was like, I got to go do something. Oh, and I, I never really eat over there because it's a food desert. There really is mm-hmm. no real good food over there. Uh, uh, I mean, I say no good food. But there's not m- many good options. Over yeah. There. So I just had to run around the corner. If I were in my neighborhood where I live, which is, you know, still, you know, very mixed neighborhood, but definitely gentrified, very gentrified, but mixed at the same, at the same time, I have more, I have more options, more healthy options, more options that taste good. So I go to the Jamaican spot and I'm ordering, you know, I wanted, I wanted to get a, a mini, cause you know, they have mini, small mm-hmm. and large as opposed to small, medium and large, but yeah, the mini, mini, mini. There. <laughs> the mini, yeah, yeah, the mini. I, I don't know what that's about, but so you got the mini. And I'm like, yeah, let me get the barbecue chicken and some cabbage. I don't really want the rice, but fine. Rice comes with it. And many and so I look, I really wanted the, the protein. So I look in the mini and I'm like, oh, it's just one um, leg. I was like, oh, no, small instead. So she had already fixed the small, the lady mm-hmm. behind the counter. And so she's like, what? She has an attitude because I want to change it. I said, well, I just want to give you more money if that's all right with you. Because mm, the small costs mercy. more than the mini. If you don't want the more money, then you, I could either not take anything or just take the mini and you'll get less and there was a guy, I don't know if he's a part owner or whatever. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's more money. Yeah. And so it was just stupid stuff like that. Like, why do I have to, why do you have an ad? I'm giving you money. I'm making it possible for you to have a job. Mm-hmm. Why are you not? And just because you're black doesn't mean I have to accept you either mistreating me or not giving me the kind of service I would get somewhere else. Yeah. And that's, it is so, yeah. interesting you say that because a lot of people, that is the, the, the main complaint. I mean, you brought up the Jamaican restaurants. I mean, I, as a Haitian, I can speak about my own Haitian people. You go to these restaurants and there's no rice. And it's like, how are you even open? Why are you open if there's no rice? Shut it down, right? There's no jigwenaja. This doesn't make sense. These are staples in our community. Shut your restaurant down if you don't have the juice, right? But um, the thing that I also hear to the contrary is that you know, well, you guys take the disrespect from the Chinese people when they're doing your nails. You take the disrespect from this. This is this I is usually not. the the rhetoric that you know is spewed that sure. you know you guys are asking. But sure. my thing is, regardless of how, as a black person, whatever whatever uh, treatment I accept or not accept from the Asian community or from the Arab community and whatnot, that doesn't mean that you black businesses have to still be subpar you know, yeah. to begin with, regardless of what I accept, let's say I, re- I, I, I take the disrespect 
from, you know, Mrs. Kim, who is doing my toes. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. does not mean that I, that I now have to be like, because you're black, I now have to just suck it up because I accept disrespect from other people. I just naturally have to accept it from you. And that is what I see a lot of like in the discussions that come up about why people don't, you know, support black businesses, rudeness, customer service, quality pricing. Pricing is always a big thing. And I know we talked about this offline, you know, $100 tips from, you know, the black business versus $40 tips from the Asian business. Um, I think that's, for me, that's why it's important to engage in that conversation though about investing because the buying, the supporting back businesses is one thing, you know, the money is coming in, but in order to make the businesses competitive with the Asians and the Jewish people or whoever it is that's within their market, there has to be an infusion of cash. Well, see, I think I, I don't disagree with that. I just think that there's another layer to it. Again, money, money doesn't always solve the problem. It's what you do with the money. Mm-hmm. Because, because let's look at Newark. Zuckerberg gave $100 million to, or maybe even more than that, to the Newark school system. And most of it went to, you know, consulting firms. Mm. Um, and it didn't reach the kids, you know. Yeah. So they had the money. But the question is, what did they do with it? And I think the yeah. issue is what you say. But I think on top of that, look who most of these black businesses are competing against. They're competing against white businesses for the most part that had access to education mm-hmm. that, that now afforded them an opportunity to have a certain level of sophistication in how they do business that black people were just not given that opportunity. Not only that, they're also, we're also coming from a, a, most of us are coming from an impoverished background where poverty produces a level of hostility to the people who are in closest proximity to you. And we have been conditioned in many cases to treat people outside of our community better than we treat people in our community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we have been taught not to really value ourselves. uh, Everybody else is better. Trickles down to so many areas of how we interact with each other, how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with the world. Um, and one of those interactions is in when we decide to open up a business and mm. we, we don't know, you know, it, it's, 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 it's from an educational perspective where we have the education on how to make sure we don't run out of rice. What's the, you know, what's the formula to, you know, how many people do we expect on an average day? What are the, what, what, are, what is our, you know, most frequent order? Uh, um, you know, what's the cost of that? What's our respective revenue? How does that now go into our ordering? How many of rice that we need to order in order to make sure we, like they're not thinking like that because they haven't been exposed in many cases. Not that they can't think that way. They just haven't been exposed to it. Uh, this is where we come from. So even, and then again, economic injustice, again, like it's everywhere. It's everywhere because we come from poverty, which is economic injustice and socioeconomic injustice because of that. Look, now we can't even just make an easy decision to buy black. Even that has to be a discussion. Mm-hmm. Buying black has to be a discussion. It can't just yeah. be, yeah, yeah, just go over here. Because of these, this predominantly economic injustice that we have faced as a result of our experience in this country. Hmm. So now I guess the, the, the larger question now at this point, since we've talked about what economic justice is, we've talked about, you know, buying the block, supporting black businesses and things of that nature. I mean, how, 
So how can we increase these opportunities in our communities, right? How can we then move forward and seek economic justice? If it's not just about supporting Black businesses, you know, what, what can we do, I guess, to achieve this, this, this goal that we have for ourselves, right? This, this, this hope that one day we can be, you know, e- e- there's equality in this, in this uh, economic scheme. Like what, you know, how do we, I guess, how do we um, even create these opportunities? Let me not say increase, but how do we even create these opportunities? And, you know, what, what can we really do to make sure that we succeed in this pursuit? Great question. Um, first, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm not usually an optimistic person by name. I'm a realist. Mm-hmm. Um, any optimism I have comes from my, my, my spiritual um, sensitivity um, but me and uh, me in and of my own, my own humanity, I'm not necessarily an optimist. I'm not a pessimist either, but I'm just one plus one is always two to me. Just me as a, as a guy, some random guy, just, you know, this is, I'm, I'm a very much, it is what it is type of guy. And, you know, let's just move on and do what we need to do. But, um, to answer that question, um, I, I am very optimistic, which is, which is, which is rare. I'm very optimistic, um, for the times in which we we're living, um, that change is going to happen. Uh, more meaningful change is going to happen. To answer your question, um, how do we, you know, buy the block? How do we get economic justice? What do we need to be doing? I think you know having access to capital when we're talking about economic um, development and economic justice. Access to capital is just you have to have that. Mm-hmm. If you don't have access to capital. And, and it's out of your reach to start your business or to, to go to school or to buy a home or, you know, to, to, to be able to get through a rough patch. Um, and you, you're not able to build equity in an asset and to, to create value and to create equity over time. Then nothing, none, of the, none of this is going to happen. You're not going to be able to buy any buildings. You're not going to be able to do anything, buy, you know, stocks or whatever. You, you just can't do it. And so mm-hmm. access to capital which is why you know we we've gone the route of really seriously, um, you know, looking to acquire uh, a bank um, with a national charter that we can at some point take nationally. Um, so that's one. But I think the more broad, um, but um, more controversial, but which I think is becoming less controversial than it was in recent history. The answer is reparations. Um, that has to be a part of the conversation in a very serious way. It just has to be. There's no mm-hmm. way. There's no way that we can discuss this without uh, discuss the issue of economic justice without talking about seriously talking about and implementing um, reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans in this country and in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So that's that. That has to do with the United States, England, France, Spain, Portugal, the major slaveholding nations. Um, have to be held to account um, because their entire societies, if you look at England, England did not have a civil war to free their enslaved Africans. They did not have a civil war. The reason why they didn't have a civil war is because the government of England decided to, instead of creating a ruckus around uh, the, the abolition of the slave trade and the emancipation of the, uh, the enslaved Africans, they decided to pay reparations, not to the slaves or the enslaved Africans, but to the slave owners who were the, who, who basically they were the government folks anyway. So they basically paid themselves reparations, took that money 
and directly inserted the proceeds of those re of the reparation payments, directly inserted those proceeds into industrialization, which is why England was the first industrialized nation in the world. Because they took the profits from slavery and invested it, capitalized it, and created an industrial revolution. So when you, when you think in those terms that literally our forefathers and foremothers created the basis, their labor, their bodies, their entire being was put on basically the line. They were, they were, they were, they literally were the foundations and their labor was the foundation, their bodies, their, every part of who they were was the foundation of the economic advancement of Western society, period. And so when you, when you think in those terms, there has to be some sort of, some, some, some sort of repair. Reparations is not a foreign concept in our world. Hundreds of groups have gotten, thousands of groups have gotten reparations. But here's the problem. Reparations have only been given to nations. We don't have a nation. African-Americans in this country are citizens of a nation, but it's not our nation. Jews got reparations from Germany or Israel because they're a nation. And those reparations went to help it, went to building the nation of Israel. The Koreans got reparations from the Japanese because the Japanese uh, created prostitution camps that prostituted Korean women during the Korean War. A fund was created to provide reparation funds for women uh, who were or families who were descendants of those women of the Korean War, of the Korean War who were prostituted by the Japanese. And I can go on and on and on. And I'm going to leave you with this thought. This pharmaceutical company, um, there, was a, there is a pharmaceutical company that, that uh, developed a drug for um, hypertension, um, high blood pressure treatment. They went to Europe and tested the drug on Europeans, white Europeans, and found that the drug had a 90-something percent response rate. It was 90-something percent effective. They took the same drug and tested it in Africa and found that the drug was 90-something percent effective in, in Africans. They took the drug to Asia, same thing. They took the drug to uh, 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 South, uh, South America, parts of South America, same thing. They took the drug to uh, uh, America um, and tested it amongst uh, uh, whites, uh, tested it amongst um, uh, 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 black uh, Ameri African Americans, and also tested it amongst Caribbean uh, Caribbeans of African descent. And what they found is that the Caribbeans of African descent Americans had a seventy percent response rate to the drug. It was only seventy percent effective, as opposed to being ninety something percent effective, like their white counterparts, and even their African, their indigenous, um, if that's a word that I should use, I know people are funny about that word, which I'm kind of, I kind of am too. So who, who, who have never left Africa, people who are native to Africa and never left, were not uh, um, a part of the slave trade, they were 90 something uh, percent of, uh, effective, or their response rate was 90 percent uh, effective. Why is that? Because slavery. <laughs> We had something in our history that the people in those nations never experienced. And as a result, the pharmaceutical company said, listen, we understand that the people in Caribbean and African-Americans, you know, need this drug, but 
I'm so sorry. You guys are such a small segment of the world's population that it doesn't make sense for us economically to alter this drug to suit your biologically altered genetics that have, that are as a result of slavery. The slave diet, slavery itself was very stressful, which created higher levels of hypertension and, 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 and high blood pressure that changed us on a molecular and biological level. It changed our DNA, it changed our genetics, where we suffer at rates uh, that other groups do not. And even if they do suffer at the same rate, they suffer at the rate of, uh, or, or their genetics are at the same uh, uh, makeup as all the other groups around the world. And so now pharmaceutical companies are coming into this situation and saying, listen, it costs us millions of dollars to do research and development to develop these drugs. We can't just spend more money just to suit some small subset of people who are descendants of slaves. So you guys are just relegated to dying at greater rates to high blood pressure and hypertension than everybody else in the world. Reparations. What happened in that situation is, is economic justice. If we were to get reparations, everybody thinks reparations isn't, I'm just gonna give you a check and I'm gonna send you a check. No, I disagree with Bob Johnson of BET. I hope he's listening. I disagree. The answer is not to send every descendant of, 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 of the enslaved Africans $300,000 and call it a day. No, especially if those people were not educated on how to manage money, not educated on how to invest money and how money works. That, that's like, you might as well take that check and throw it down the toilet because you're not addressing all the other issues that, that persist in society. What happened in that situation is, listen, this subset of people, these descendants of enslaved Africans, they suffer from this disease at greater rates than other groups. And the pharmaceutical companies do not have the inclination or the money, mainly the inclination, to do anything about it. Therefore, we're going to create a, basically what you would call it is a fund. You, you create a fund, an international fund that's run by the international community. The reparation money goes into that fund, and it's the job of the people, of the administrators of that fund to disseminate and allocate the funds to issues that affect black people around the country. And so funds would, in that case, go to developing, researching and developing drugs that would then be altered to be effective for people who are descendants of those enslaved Africans so that we can have justice. So you see how economic justice leads to health justice? Yeah, I you mean, it's tied into every aspect. It ties into everything. So this is why my belief is that if we were to get economic justice, all of the other justices would fall into place. Mm-hmm. I digress. Okay. I did a lot of talking. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're knowledgeable. What can we do? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, this information was really, really helpful. Just again, understanding what economic justice is. It's di- the difference between that saying that and saying we're seeking economic development and then really just going into some of the reasons why we're not seeing, you know, this, this economic justice, right? Like what's, what the barriers are, what's preventing us from, from, from achieving that right now. And then also discussing, you know, what we need to do to move forward to seek it, right? So I think that we were able to touch on a lot of different areas and hopefully the people who are listening will now, you know, have a more well-rounded understanding of this concept of economic justice, why it's important, um, why we need to continue the fight for it. And then, you know, 
you know, how do we, you know, how do we really move forward with that? Like once we do get it, like what can we do, right, to maintain that? You know what I mean? Um, so I think that it was really, really informative. So I really thank you yeah. so much for just being a guest and sharing your knowledge and, and really breaking it down for the people. My pleasure. Um, I, I live for this. I live for justice um, wherever it doesn't currently exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm, in it. I'm, I'm in it to win it. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not playing around. All right. <laughs> well, Brandon, do you have any contact information that you can share with the people? I know that you said that you were a real estate developer earlier on. You're working on, you know, getting this 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 black bank, um, you know, up and running. So there might be people who are saying, wow, I, I need to get, you know, this Brandon guy in my court. So I need to pick his brain, you know. So are you, do you have any social medias or any contacts that yeah, you can yeah, share? Yeah, feel free to, yeah, feel free to reach out to me at, uh, at I am Brandon Gibson on Instagram. Just check me out there. All my updates are there and connect with me there and hopefully we can build together. All right, great. Well, thank you again, Brandon, for being a guest on today's episode. And thank you, everyone, for tuning into another episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, and I'll talk to you guys next week. You were listening to According to RP on WJMS Radio. About time you tuned in. Tune in each and every Sunday. I can't wait to come back. 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's all.